The Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2, and as you do that, children are dismissed to children's worship at this time. So Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, as we continue our Advent sermon series, which is titled Christmas Gifts, we look this morning at the gift of joy. So Luke 2, verses 8 through 12, the familiar words of Luke's Christmas story. Before we read them, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before your throne and pray that you would fill us with your spirit this morning as we open up your word together. Lord, it is our desire to find the joy that you talk about in in your word, and we pray that your spirit would so fill our hearts and our minds this morning that we would be led into it. And so come to us this morning, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Maybe sin. When the people of Judah were taken as exiles to Babylon, it was a dark and bitter time. Their city was destroyed, their lives were disrupted, and their hope was gone. The psalmist in Psalm 137 describes how they felt in that time. And he says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. And there in the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing? The songs of the Lord while in a foreign land. And maybe that's how some of us feel this Advent season. Maybe we find ourselves in a season of darkness and gloom. You turn on the news, and you're burdened by the troubled world in which we live with one troubled story after another. Or you wake up to another day of tension in your marriage or conflict in your family and you wonder if things will ever be put right again. Or you dread the thought of heading into this first Christmas without a loved one and the deep ache of loss and loneliness seems to overwhelm you. Whatever path we may have taken to get there, many of us find ourselves in that place of darkness and gloom, and we cry out with the psalmist, how can we sing songs of joy while in this place? What reason do we have for joy 
in a world so filled with darkness and gloom? Well, the people of God were asking that same question around the time Jesus was born. The people of first century Palestine were a people dwelling in darkness. They were living under the reign of the Roman Empire. And as one historian says, there was no more explosive and inflammable country in the world than Palestine at the time Jesus was born. King Herod, of course, was uh, Rome's puppet king over Palestine, and he was a ruthless and paranoid man. It was he who ordered uh, the massacre of all the boys in, in Bethlehem and its vicinity because he felt threatened by the news that a new king had been born. And around that same time, Roman troops got wind of a Jewish revolt in a small town in Galilee, and they burned the city, and they crucified 2,000 Jews who took part in the uprising. This is the world into which Jesus came. When the angel appeared and, uh, to the shepherds in Palestine that night, all was not calm and bright, as the song says. The angel peeled back the heavens and he peered into a world of deep darkness, a world of death and despair, of curfews and crackdowns, a world of unrest and injustice, of bloodstained swords and secret spies. A world longing for the joy that was promised by the prophet Isaiah, who said the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. The people of God, at the time Jesus was born, were living in a world of deep darkness and longing. For joy. And it was into this world of darkness and gloom that the angel came, the, the blazing light of God's glory, shining on some shepherds keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel said the very words that the, the world was so longing to hear, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And what is that good news of great joy? What reason do we really have to be joyful? Well, the angel says this, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, whether the angel intended it or not, this announcement is a direct challenge uh, to the imperial propaganda of the day. For the Roman Empire was hailing Caesar as Savior and Lord, the one whose coming brought good news to the world. And so the angel comes with, with his announcement reversing all of those things and, and saying that the real good news of great joy is found not in some Roman emperor but in a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And not just any baby, a baby who is, as the angel says, Savior and Messiah and Lord. Three exalted and weighty and loaded titles. In fact, this is the only place in the whole Bible where all three of these titles are used together and applied to Christ. And these three titles shed light on why his birth is the source of such indescribable joy. So we want to know what reason do we have for joy. This is the reason we have for joy. I want to take a little bit of time just to go through these titles with you this morning. The title Savior uh, conveys Jesus' identity as mighty deliverer. 
the title has its roots in the Old Testament where it was typically used in reference to, to God, almost always in reference to God as the one who delivers, the one who rescues his people from all kinds of peril. In fact, this is one of the, one of the most dominant themes of God in the Old Testament. On almost every page, we see some expression of God as the mighty deliverer of his people, the rock of their salvation again and again and again from the, from the, the, the first books of the Bible through the Psalms and the prophets again and again we see God as the deliverer of his people. One of the many places we see it is in Psalm 18, which is a psalm of praise written by David after God had delivered him from his enemies. And David says this, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. And so the Old Testament concept of, of God as Savior is that he is the one who delivers his people. He, he rescues them from dangers and perils and enemies that they could not on their own overcome. Now, when we get to the New Testament, this concept of deliverance continues, but it's also expanded more fully into the spiritual realm. And so that Jesus is Savior means he is not only the mighty deliverer who will give us victory over our enemies and dangers, but he is also the mighty deliverer who will rescue us from the deepest problem of all. The the one problem that lies at the heart of all the other problems, that is, he is the one who delivers us from the condemning power of sin. Which is why the angel said to Joseph in Matthew's account of the Christmas story, when he found out that Mary was pregnant and and the angel said to Joseph, give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The Apostle Paul put it so plainly, I think, in Ephesians 2, when he said, uh, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And so as Paul says in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what Jesus has done as Savior. He did for us what we could never have done for ourselves. He has delivered us from the hopeless, uh, hopelessness and the deadness of our sin. Uh, several months ago, or maybe back in September or something like that, we took our boat out to Green Bay um, I think I was doing some scouting for the duck hunting season. Um, and we put the boat in at the Duck Creek Landing, uh, which uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it. If you take 41 north towards Green Bay, um, and you see there's a, the, the creek that empties into the bay, that's the Duck Creek Landing. And there's only one loading area, one landing in that, in that area. And so uh, we put the boat in, we uh, boated for a little while, and we came back to the landing. And when I uh, went up to my truck to, you know, to go back the trailer down to, to load the boat, got in the truck and I turned the key and it was dead. And so here we were in one of those sort of hopeless or, or helpless kinds of situations because we had a dead truck with an empty trailer attached to it, and we had our boat in the water at the landing. And so after a bit of scratching our heads and searching on the phone, I, I, I called a, a local roadside assistance company and, and said it wasn't an emergency. And so it took about, I don't know, 20 minutes, a half hour or so, and they, they came out. And the guy arrived in a, in a rusty red Toyota pickup, and his name was Kevin. And he was kind of a, a rough-looking sort of guy. He was bald-headed and muscle-bound and covered with tattoos. 
But it was a relief to see him because he was help in what was otherwise a helpless situation. And he jump-started my truck, and I paid for his service and sent him on his way. And then I proceeded to back my trailer down into the water, and I loaded my boat, and there my truck died again. Which was now, of course, far worse because... I was the only, uh, there was the only one landing, and I was now completely blocking that landing, and there were four other boats, or four other trucks with their boats waiting to get in. And a couple of them, grac- uh, you know, uh, graciously and helpfully tried to jumpstart my truck, but to no avail. So I got back on the phone, and I called Kevin, my tattoo-covered angel from a few minutes before, and, uh, and I said, no, this time it really is an emergency. It's a pretty urgent situation. I got people waiting, and, I, I, and so he dropped what he was doing, and he came over right away. And he uh, jump-started my truck again, got it started, and I pulled the, truck, the, the boat out and pulled over, and we decided we better get a new battery. And so he uh, went and got a new battery for me, came back, installed it. And when all was said and done, I went to pay him, thinking this is going to cost a fortune, emergency rate, and, and all this stuff. And to my surprise, he didn't charge us anything at all. And in fact, he even sent us home with his own battery pack, just in case our truck stalled again, which it did. And so in, in some small way that day, Kevin was our deliverer. He came into a situation where we were powerless to help ourselves, and he, he rescued us. You have no idea what a, what a joy it was to see that, that, that tattoo-covered man come that second time. Deliverance. This is the point of the story. Deliverance came that day in a surprisingly generous way through surprisingly unexpected means. I never would have thought that it would turn out that way having seen, first seen him when he arrived in his rusty red Toyota truck. But so too it is with the angel's announcement to the shepherds, isn't it? Today in the town of David, a savior, a mighty deliverer has been born. Deliverance came in a surprisingly generous way through surprisingly unexpected means. It was a deliverance that went above and beyond the problem of Rome, and it came not through legions and pedigrees of power, but as the angel said, through a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. A deliverance that was surprisingly generous and in a surprisingly unexpected way. We have reason for joy because Jesus is Savior, our mighty Deliverer, who has freed us from the condemning power of sin. We also have reason for joy because Jesus is Messiah. And the title Messiah conveys his identity as promised king. It has its origin in the covenant that God made with King David back in 2 Samuel 7, where God said to him, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. If you go on to read the rest of those verses, three times in those short verses, God says to David about his throne enduring forever. It'll be forever. It'll be forever. Your throne is going to endure forever. God promises that there will be a king in the line of David whose throne and kingdom would never end. 
And so time goes on, and after David dies, and the people of God wait in longing for this promised king, for this, this, this covenant promise to David to be fulfilled. The, promise, uh, the prophet Isaiah said of him, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The prophet Micah said this promised king would have ties to Bethlehem. He said, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. The prophet Daniel was given a vision of this promised king as one who had supreme authority over all kingdoms on earth. And he said, in my vision at night, I looked. And this, again, is right in the middle of the book of Daniel, in the middle of all the, all the, the darkness of these, these world powers and terrifying kingdoms. And here's this vision of where he says, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And the years go by. And the people wait in longing and expectation for this promised king to, to come. And one night the angel says to the shepherds, Today, imagine that. Today, after hundreds of years of waiting, today in the town of David, the Messiah has been born. The promised king has come, the one who will reign in justice and righteousness, the one who will provide perfect peace and security for his people, the one who will triumph over all of our enemies, the one who has sovereign power and authority over all kings and nations and political realms, has come today. We have reason for joy because Jesus is Messiah, our promised king. And finally, we have reason for joy because Jesus is Lord. The title Lord conveys his identity as sovereign God. And I won't say a whole lot about this because if you remember from a couple months ago, I did a whole sermon on the lordship of Christ from Philippians chapter 2. And I said in that sermon how the title Lord brings together two very uh, profound and weighty Old Testament designations for God. The first is Yahweh, uh, which is uh, the personal name of God, and it captures the essence of his character in relation to his covenant people. This is who God is in the essence of his being and how he relates to his people. The second is Adonai, which is a title that conveys the supreme and sovereign rule of God. And so both of these designations for God come together in Christ as Lord. He is sovereign God, the supreme ruler of the universe, which means he has supreme authority over every single atom and cell in the whole created universe. There is nothing that is beyond the reach of his sovereign power. And therefore, he can be trusted in every sphere of our existence. We have reason for joy because Jesus is Lord, our sovereign God. In the darkness of their exile to Babylon, the people of Judah cried out to God, wondering, how can we sing songs of joy while in a foreign land? And maybe we cry out with them, wondering how we could possibly have joy in, in such a season of sufferings and struggles and sorrows. 
How can we sing songs of joy when the world is so dark? Well, the answer is found in the angel's announcement to the shepherds. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Our joy is found in Christ and in what he has done for us. He is our mighty deliverer who came to save us from the grip of sin so that we live in freedom from its condemning power. He is our promised king whose kingdom will never end, and we have the delight of being part of that kingdom and, and, and building it until he returns. And he is our sovereign God who reigns supreme over all things, that he can be trusted in all things. There is a joy that, that to be had that runs deeper than any suffering and any sorrow and any darkness. It is the joy of knowing this one announced by the angel that night. Walter Wangren told a story, a true story, about a woman named Gloria Ferguson. And she worked at the Salvation Army Senior Center, and she had an uncle named Sonny Boy. And Sonny Boy, her uncle, was like a father to her. And she loved him deeply. And when he died, she was overwhelmed with grief. And as Christmas approached, she was just sort of trapped in this darkness of her grief, just teetering on the edge of despair, and she couldn't shake it. She couldn't get out of it. And one of the old men of the Salvation Army would try to console her, but nothing ever seemed to help. And he would often find her uh, sitting alone in, this, in a storage room in the basement of the Salvation Army Senior Center. It was a tiny little room that just had one little chair and a desk and, and a little light bulb, and, and, and she would be sitting there with her head down on the desk, just trapped in this deep and unshakable sorrow. And one day when the old man was trying to console her in that storage room and, and, and to no avail, the senior citizens began singing outside her door. They had decided to try to cheer Miss Gloria with Christmas carols. And as their old and crackling voices sang of Jesus' birth, something began to change inside of Gloria. A little glimmer of joy began to break into her dark world and to shine into her dark heart. And she lifted her head and she looked at the door. And as the songs continued, one song after another, singing of the birth of Jesus, she stood up and, and tears were now streaming down her face. And pretty soon she closed her eyes and she lifted her hands and she began to sing along. And for the first time in a long time, joy had come. You see, this is what the birth of Jesus has done for us. It, it is good news of great joy. What the angel announced that night has the power to pierce the darkness and to turn wailing into dancing and sorrow into joy. I shared this, I think, with you a few weeks ago, a quote from Tim Keller, but I'm going to share it again because it fits in this context. So Tim Keller said, to rejoice, to rejoice, he said, is to treasure a thing until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. To rejoice, so what true joy is, to, to rejoice is to treasure a thing until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. It doesn't mean you feel happy all the time. Joy runs deeper than circumstantial happiness. It is to treasure a thing until your heart rests in it and taste the sweetness of it. You see, we find joy even in troubled times by, by treasuring Christ 
until our heart rests in him and we taste the sweetness of knowing him. As we uh, conclude this morning, I thought it would be, since this is a message on the gift of joy, and one of the expressions of joy is laughter, I thought it would be fitting to end with something that makes us laugh, or if we're too Dutch to laugh out loud in church, at least hopefully it will make us smile a little bit. So if you find it funny at all, please laugh because it will make me feel better that it was worth including this as a conclusion to the sermon. So I came across the question, how many church people does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer, of course, depends on what church tradition you are from. If you're a charismatic, it takes only one because your hands are already in the air. If you're a Lutheran, it takes three, one to change the bulb and two to fight off any non-Lutherans who may attempt to join you in the effort. If you're a Pentecostal, it takes ten. One to change the light bulb, nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. If you're a Mormon, it takes five. One man to change the bulb and four wives to tell him how to do it. (laughs) Thanks. That's good. It gets better. If you're a Methodist, it takes a minimum of 15. One to change the bulb, three committees to approve the change, and one to bring a casserole. If you're reformed, you've got to make fun of ourselves a little too. If you're reformed, the answer is none because God alone is sovereign over the changing of all things. <laughs> and finally, if you're a Unitarian, the answer is everyone because each person has to find whatever light bulb works for them and then on a Sunday service, a poem will be read in which all light bulb traditions are celebrated as equally valid paths to luminescence. <laughs> May we find joy in this Advent season as we treasure the gift of Christ who came to be our Savior, our Messiah, and our Lord. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, we have so much reason for joy. Even, O Lord, in a world that is still tainted by sin and still burdened by darkness. Lord, we have reason for joy because of what the angel said that night. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Oh, Lord, teach us to so treasure you that our heart rests in you and tastes again and again the sweetness of knowing you. Oh, Lord, hear our silent prayers of response this morning as we come before your throne.
O Lord, the prophet Isaiah anticipated that day when the joy of the redeemed would fill the earth, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And Lord, you did come. You came in the person of Jesus, who is our Savior, our Messiah, and our Lord. And so the joy of the redeemed is our joy. The picture that Isaiah painted is the picture that is ours to claim. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. And water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. And it will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued rescued through Jesus the Savior will return and they will enter Zion with singing and an everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. Oh Lord, we praise you for that beautiful joy that Isaiah anticipated has come. In Christ, may we live in it, and may we continue to taste the sweetness of it. In Jesus' name, amen.